welcome back to the History of the British Isles, episode 19, Death of the Danelaw. The Danelaw, as I neglected to mention in this in my episodes on Alfred the Great and his brothers, was the area of England under Viking control. Remember to follow me on Twitter, join the podcast Discord, and join me on Patreon. Links to all of those will be in the episode's description. If you hear a bit of uh, rustling or bird sounds, that's because my window's open currently to freshen up my room because it's quite warm. Let us now begin. Where we left off in episode 17, Alfred had pushed Hatestein out of his fortified camp. After this, he moved to the fort of Shubury. This was further north into Essex, and so harder for Alfred to reach him. He received reinforcements from the Danes of East Anglia and York, bolstering his numbers. Haystein launched a raid up the Thames Valley and from there towards the River Severn. Lord Aethelred of Mercia, the same one who was married to Aethelflaed, pursued the Vikings with the help of troops from Wessex and Wales. He cornered Haystein on the island of Burlington, likely in North Wales. The Vikings were defeated and... This, and this is recorded about the battle, and I quote, After many weeks had passed, some of the heathen, sti- some of the heathen, and in brackets, Vikings, died of hunger, but some, having eaten, having, bu- having by then eaten their horses, broke out of the fortress and joined battle with those who were on the east bank of the river. But when many thousands of pagans had been slain, all the others had been put to flight. Christians were a- the Christians and then brackets English were masters of the place of death. In that battle, the most noble Aldi and many of the king's thanes were killed. After the battle, Hastein went back to Shubury. Hastein then moved up to Chester and took control of the old Roman fort. The Mercians put Hastein under siege, attempting to starve him out. Hastein fled Chester and went raiding in the Welsh kingdoms of Rhysianog, Gwent and Glicic. I'm sure I got some of that wrong. He only stopped raiding in the summer of 894, when he returned to the Danish-controlled Northumbria before settling at, the fo- at a fort on the River Lee. In the summer of the next year, Alfred arrived with an army and obstructed Hastine's control of the river by building forts on either bank. Hastine sent all of the women of Balti back to East Anglia and marched to Bridge North, on the bank of the River Seven. All, all the while he was being hotly pursued by Alfred, Haystein held out to the summer of 896 before his army dispersed, many of the men being less penniless in a foreign land. Alfred died three, three years later, on the 26th of November 899, and so comes to the end our saga on Alfred's reign. Whether he deserves the title of great is up for you to decide, and if I have enough patrons, I might put a poll up for the patrons to vote on. Personally, I think Alfred deserves the title of great. He checks all the boxes on the good monarchs list. He was a good commander, an astute governor, and learned scholar. He helped Wessex in the kingdom's time of need and left it in a far better situation than he found it in. He raised two great monarchs, Edward and Aetherflaed, who continued to take back lives of the Vikings. It will be generations till the Anglo-Saxons will get in this much trouble again. 
and that through exceptionally bad governance and circumstance. On his father's death, Edward the Elder took control of Wessex. He is called the Elder not because of a particularly long rule, but to distinguish him from the later Plantagenet and Windsor monarchs sharing his name. Breaking from the norm, Edward had his coronation in Kingston-upon-Thames. He also took the title of King of the Anglo-Saxons. He was likely coronated in Kingston because it was more central to England as a whole. Edward did not rest much when taking the throne and was challenged by his cousin, Aethelwold. Aethelwold seized the royal manor of Wimborne, where his father Aethelred was buried, and barricaded himself in. Edward raised a levy of mounted troops and retook Wimborne. Aethelwold fled to Northumbria, and the Anglo-Saxon records in the passage came to the host in Northumbria. Sources differ, but he may have been acclaimed king. At some point between 902 and 904, Aethelwold made, made another bid for the throne of Wessex. A version of the Anglo-Saxon chronicle coming from beyond Wessex's control records that Aethelwold, and I quote, came hither from over sea to Essex with a large fleet. Historians are not sure whether he came from York or had been to Denmark to raise forces. We do know that he did have substantial English allies in addition to his Danish forces. According to the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, he ravaged Mercia before, and I quote, returning east homewards. Aethelwold was called by one chronicler King of the Danes and by another King of the Pagans, but these names were, large, were likely anachronistic. He battled Aethelwold, Edward battled Aethelwold somewhere in Cambridgeshire. In the battle, Aethelwold, along with a number of his allies, died. The Viking force then dissipated. After dealing with the threat on the home front, Edward attacked the Danes of Northumbria. In this effort, he was totally successful and gained control of all of England south of the Humber. Mercia, of course, was his puppet. Let's talk a bit about Edward's partnership with Aethel Flayd. Edward and his sister were able to secure the passage of a relic, the bones of St. Oswald, out of Northumbria and into Mercia. Aethelflaed's expansion of the birds that I mentioned last episode also helped Edward. This was a good way to consolidate newly taken lands. The siblings also split border defence, with Aethelflaed taking the Welsh border and the northwestern front, which was often raided by the Irish Vikings, and Edward taking care of the rest. This partnership ended 918 when Aethelflaed died. When Edward took control of Mercia, he also took direct control of all England south of the Humber. He would only he would only rule in for six years. He would only rule in her absence for six years, and died in 924 at Foundern on Dee. Let us move on to Aethelstan, the first king of the English. 
I have been able to find little information about him, but I've read through three different sources, as well as my preliminary reading, which I have done for the entirety of the podcast. I am sure I've missed out something, though. He was described by his brother-in-law, Otto I of the Holy Roman Empire, as ruler of the whole of Britain, and you could see why. By 939, his court was imperial, on an English scale at least. There were six Danish jarls, or earls, innumerate English notables, two archbishops, and three Welsh puppet kings. The King of Scotland, Constantine, even paid him homage. So how did he gain so much power? In 927, he established direct control over York, the last Danish holdout. This made him king over all of England. The same year, he was also able to force King Constantine of Scotland to pay him homage. In 930, Owain of Strathclyde, King Constantine and Olaf Guthrithson, a claimant to York with the support of the Danes in Ireland, teamed up against him. They beat him in battle at Brunnenburg, further enforcing his subjugation of the Scots. He died in 939. So, we have arrived at England. It's been a long journey, and we still have a long way to go to the Norman Conquest. When we get there, I'll swing over the rest of the British Isles, and then move on to the Normans. I might be doing some special episodes on Celtic culture as well along the way. Remember that I have a Patreon. Go join the Discord server and follow me on Twitter. Before I go, I'd also like to say how grateful I am about the exponential recent growth. Thanks for that. Have a good week, all of you. I hope to continue with regular releases. Also, please review me on iTunes and wherever else you can review podcasts. It makes it easier for people to find the show and, and more importantly, shows me that you're enjoying it. Goodbye and see you next week. Thank you.